Would you have any interest in having a chat with somebody who built their career as a portfolio manager of professional portfolios for endowments, university, the endowments of universities and nonprofit organizations, large portfolios, who's had the opportunity to interview hundreds of individual managers and then went on to sell a stake in a business and retire at about 45-ish? I sure would. Today, we talk with David Stein. Today is episode 57. I guess it's a little bit silly to say I sure would be interested when, in fact, I already have and I was interested and I'm still interested. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. I thank you for being here. My name is Joshua Sheets and I'm your host. Today is Tuesday, September the 9th, 2014. And today's show is an interview with J. David Stein, host of the Money for the Rest of Us podcast and a former professional portfolio manager, or at least portfolio manager consultant. It's always a little bit difficult when you're talking in the financial business to try to figure out exactly what title works for everybody. I think you're really going to like today's show. I, I was really thrilled when I uh, had the chance to talk with David. We had a very interesting conversation. We talked about his personal journey, and then we also talked about portfolio management, the science of portfolio management. This is one of those subjects that I'm incredibly interested in, and I have a feeling that there's going to be a lot of information that you're going to take away. Enjoy. So, David, welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. I appreciate your being with us this morning. Thank you. I've been excited about uh, this conversation. I had an opportunity when I, uh, someone, when I was at Podcast Movement Conference, I was uh, in Dallas a couple weeks ago. I was talking with people about uh, the different, you know, some of the different financial shows, and a couple people had mentioned your show as being an excellent, an excellent finance show. And so then I know we connected, and I had a chance to go and listen to some of the shows, and I really admire the work that you're doing, and uh, I like the approach that you're taking with your show. So thank you for the work that you're doing and creating it. Great, thanks. What I'd like to do is I know you come from a background of portfolio management. So there are two primary things that I was hoping we could cover in our chat today. First is talk a little bit about your story and what you've learned in your own personal financial world and the lessons that you've learned, the things that you've done well, maybe some of the mistakes that you've made and how you've grown over the years. Because my impression, and please confirm or deny this, my impression is that you've you've been able to follow the the early retirement path. And then in the second half of the conversation, I thought it'd be fun to talk about your experience as a professional portfolio manager. So maybe start with what's your background? What's your story? Well, sure. I have a traditional background. I, I, got, I always enjoyed finance. I have an undergrad in finance. I got an MBA in finance. Worked for a couple years in, in corporate finance versus a credit analyst. And I was a planning manager doing budgeting, and just sort of traditional corporate finance role. And what I found in corporate finance was you always had to be looking for your next position and your next job. And, and I just didn't want to do that with a family. And so I was attracted to the financial space, the investment advisory space, because I could have everything move around me in terms of the world of finance and not get bored, but I could stay in one place. And so I there was, I was probably one of the few people, this is back in the mid-90s, some, there was some company that I'd never heard of, ran an ad 
in the newspaper classified wanted an analyst that could read bank statements. And I had never seen a corporate bank statement in my life, but I had personal <laughs> checking account so I could read that. So I applied to the ad. It was a small 28 firm person consulting firm. And they were investment consultant. And I, I had no idea any, what an investment consultant did because they worked with institutional clients, mostly endowments and foundations. And, and what I found in the institutional investment management world is, is there's really, some call them a gatekeeper, but really the, most not-for-profits have, that are large enough that have $50 million, $100 million or more hire a consultant to work with their staff, but also to work with their board. Because most not-for-profits board have a board that, or investment committee that makes the decisions in terms of the, the institution's endowment, what the portfolio strategy should be, what the asset allocation, what are the policies. And that's what this firm did. And it was a 28-person firm. And, and at the time, I thought that was a lot of risk for me going to mm -hmm. such a small firm. It turned out to be an incredibly good decision. I, I read an article once by Peter Drucker in Harvard Business Review, and, and he talked about gazelle, companies that are gazelles and companies that, and I forget the animal used, let's say an elephant, but gazelle companies, companies that are smaller, you find there's a lot more opportunity to have an impact. Absolutely. And, and that's what I found very much so. So I started as an analyst. Within a year or two, I, or really within first year, I was meeting with clients. So there I was at 20. 30-year-old, 29-year-old meeting with $300 million endowments and, and absolutely shocked that they believed me. And <laughs> I remember driving home once meeting with this college and it's like they, you know, here's, this is room of 50, 60-year-olds, 60-year-olds think I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and, and, and I, but I mean, I sort of did, but it was still sort of earth shattering. <laughs> and, and so I've always been a student. I better make sure I know what I'm talking about. And, you know, as part of that position, one of our responsibilities was to research money managers. And so I was always involved in starting a, a dedicated research group and researching money managers, researching asset classes. And within three or four years, I was a partner at the firm. And, and that's the advantage of having a small firm because the founders wanted to leave. And... And so I, I was there 16 years. We went through a couple of different organizational restructurings. We had done an LBO, which worked out incredibly well. Leveraged buyout? Yeah, okay. in terms of buying out the company. And I grew up with these, you know, we were all kind of 29, 30s when we started. And, and I got sort of into my, my mid-40s, and, and all my partners were all kind of the same age. We brought on some younger partners. We had had a very good successful LBO. The company was profitable. And I just found I was at the position where I could just wait out the clock for the next 15 years, 10 years and retire, or I could go try something else. And, and that's what I did. And so I, I left when I was 46, when I, when I, they, we had, I, they bought me out. And they were, I mean, whenever you leave a company like that, there's always reasons for doing so. And, and let me backtrack a little bit. You know, as a consulting firm, we did not have discretion. And so we would make recommendations to clients as to what they should do with their portfolio and which manager they, they should use. But they would always have the ultimate decision. And I, I found that I actually wanted to manage the money myself. I, I felt like I knew enough about managing money. So I created 
in 2002 what's called an outsourced CIO model. It's where effectively a client will outsource to our firm to actually manage the money themselves, choose which managers, which asset types, you know, all within a policy. And CIO so, is chief investment officer. Chief investment officer, mm-hmm. correct. And in, in maybe later in the conversation, I'll, I'll tell you sort of the genesis of that particular product. But it, it went extremely well. Performance was good over time, and it grew very, very quickly. But I, I found one frustration with the institutional world was it's very, it, first, it's very, very competitive, but they're always comparing themselves to a market benchmark. It's mm-hmm. a very much a relative performance game. It doesn't matter. Well, it matters a little bit if you lose 10%, but it's, it's much better to lose 10% and the market lost 12 or your benchmark versus gaining 10% and the market gained 12. Right. And, and ultimately, that, that got frustrating right. for, for me. And, and that, that was just you know, one of the reasons I left, just, just tired of the constant competition. And, and I had out, we had outperformed the benchmark. But part of the challenge is we at sort of this was in 2012, 2011 time frame. We had created a portfolio as we added different asset types, hedge funds, where the only way it could really outperform is if the market fell. And, and I literally found myself hoping for the market to fall. And I thought, this is not good. Right? <laughs> I'm hoping for bad things to happen so that my professional life is, is more placid. And, and at that point, I, I left. And, and it's, it's been, you know, it's been interesting because it's been a couple years, two and a half years since I left and been out on my own. Retired is, a, is sort of a loaded word. Sometimes I use it just to see reactions. Sometimes I don't. I say a right. But effectively, I can get up every morning and choose to do what I want. And as part of that, I've always enjoyed teaching and teaching about finance, teaching about the economy. And that's one reason I started the podcast Money for the Rest of Us, just as an opportunity to, to teach. Because it, it's, it's been enlightening. Because you really, when you start a podcast, as you know, you build a community. And people email you and ask questions. And, and it's, it's fun just to be able to have a personal impact like that. It's so exciting. And, I mean, I love that you're doing it. I wish I, I was thinking this morning. I just came from a meeting early this morning. And... Uh, on my way home for this interview, and I was thinking, if I if the podcasting world had existed in, when I was in high school, I would I can't even imagine where I would be in my own personal knowledge and career today, because it gives you such amazing access to people from a diverse range of experiences, and I, I spent thousands of dollars on educational products. Uh, all through all through high school and college, and when I look at the ability now to listen to a podcast, listen to someone like you who's had you know fifteen or twenty years of experience in a specific business, or go and listen to people from all different backgrounds, what an amazing resource! And I love that. I mean, I feel the same thing like you do that that it's just it's fun to be able to teach somebody something and then and get that email i mean it just it's so heartwarming to get that email someone saying i never knew this until you explained it and it makes it all feel worth it absolutely you mentioned you didn't feel like you knew what you were doing do you ever still feel that way (laughs) probably more so in the sense that 
the, the investment management industry, now ultimately what's sold is the ability to predict the future. Mm -hmm. that, that is what, that's why hedge funds can, can charge 2 and 20, 2%, 20% of profits. That's mm -hmm. why people often hire advisors. I mean, they, sometimes they won't admit it, but they expect you to be able to know what's going on and to predict what's going on. And, and that was one of my other frustrations. I mean, I, I certainly had my best guess, but it, it's been so refreshing to admit, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. And, and so when you do that, you realize, well, there's certainly still a lot you don't know. But I don't, I don't feel, I'm, I'm more of a, that's why I like the name of your show, Radical Personal Finance, because I've always been somewhat of uh, a radical in terms of unconventional wisdom, in terms of how, just, tr just trying to f figure out the <laughs> business and, and, and realizing that a lot of what serves as, as conventional advice and, and practices just doesn't work. Right. And well, even something as, you know, like modern portfolio theory, which I, I did an episode yesterday on. I listened to it. It was excellent. I was glad that you did it. But that's conventional advice, right? right but right. you realize it doesn't necessarily apply to everyone, and there's, there's some challenges with it. But, right. but you're taught in school. It's what everybody does. But then once you get into the industry, you realize, yeah, well, people sort of have that and, and might use it, but oftentimes they do something completely different. I struggle with the psychological concept that as humans, it seems like we desire a sense of certainty. And there are some things over which we can gain a sense of certainty, but there are many things that are just uncertain. But we're, we're uncomfortable with a sense of uncertainty. And... Uh, it, what you know, modern portfolio theory is an excellent example, and what ha and uh, I, and I'm I'm glad that guys like you are talking about it, and and hopefully you know I'm I'm going to try to teach my way through it from the academic perspective. But once you understand it, you know, then you under then you can understand the flaws. But the problem is that many people try to glom onto an idea and say, well, this is how things are, and then everything gets translated in light of that. Theories are helpful. But you can't, and you can't place too much. It's like trying to drive looking in the back, in the rearview mirror. That's what inherently everything is about. And the theories are helpful, maybe as a way to guide thinking, just like economic theory is helpful. But you can't take them to the extreme to say this gives me certainty. And I feel like with advisors, the challenge with advisors is that when you are an advisor to somebody, when you are a fiduciary. You feel that I mean, at least I did, and I'm sure you did. I mean, tell me if you did or not. But I always felt that responsibility so keenly, and it affects how you provide advice. And it's you have to work hard to find the clients that value your ability to say, "This is the best guess that I can make," but I don't know if this is going to work or not. But it's one thing to feel comfortable with your knowledge background and, and what you do know and look at your own personal financial situation and say, I'm comfortable with this risk. It's another thing when you're managing somebody's life savings and you realize what a major impact you can have. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a heavy, at least I always found it to be a heavy, a heavy responsibility and even a burden. I, I agree with you. And, and, and one reason... I like the institutional space and working with a university is it really, it wasn't, it was the institution's money, but right. it wasn't anyone's money on the board. And so there was a degree of separation. 
But one of the most eye-opening moments for me is we used to also manage money for financial planners. Mm-hmm. And so the financial planner would always interact with the client. And I, ne- I would never really see the client. We would manage pools of money. But during the fall of 2008, when after Lehman had gone bankrupt, the markets were collapsing, this financial planner asked me to come out and speak to their clients. And, and literally their clients were mostly 55 and 60-year-olds with, with just deer-in-the-headlight look mm-hmm. in their eyes, absolutely terrified. And, and I'm up there by myself trying to, you know, October 2008, trying to give them a sense of confidence that the world was not going to end. And and I, I felt that weight, and, and they left somewhat pacified, but it, that feeling never left me. And, you know, after I left my prior firm, I did start a registered investment advisor for a while and thought about taking on clients and, and quickly realized that I can never manage money for somebody else again. Right. I over I oversee my mother in laws, I oversee my my parents, but I, I you ask, do I ever feel like I don't know what I'm doing? I, I'm sort of at that point in the sense that I don't feel comfortable telling people what to do with their money. I, I feel comfortable teaching, providing education, but I don't want the stress of making a bad decision and potentially impacting them. And, and I, I feel for investment advisors that, that do that because it's, it's very, very hard. Oh, it's, it's a tremendous weight. And the reason I was joking about, you know, if you don't feel like you know what you're doing, I, the more I learn, the more I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. Because I'm, <laughs> I'm always learning something new and all of a sudden recognizing, wow, that's an tire- entirely new concept. And then the more you know, the more it seems like the more you re- recognize you don't know. And there are so many little – there are so m- many different strategies that can be used. There are so many little tricks. There are so many little – there's just so much specialization that the world, especially the world of finance, is huge that it is – it's not possible for someone to be – I mean you can be a generalist. I think – I feel pretty competent at this point that I'm able to be a generalized financial planner uh, and I have some pretty deep knowledge in a few different aspects. But I was listening to your show on currency trading and it's like I don't have a clue how that works beyond just maybe the big picture. Uh, I've never traded a currency in my life. I've never traded options. I've enjoyed having a couple of people on uh, that are uh, options traders. I've never traded an option in my life. Uh, but so it's it's humbling. But in our, in our society, like you're not supposed to admit that. But yet I think that's kind of the starting point is recognize what you don't know and and admit it. And that gives you the ability to go on and learn. Well, and, and here's an advantage that people need to realize most investment professionals, if not all, have no idea what they're doing either. Mm-hmm. In the sense that, I mean, I've I spent a lot of time researching some of the smartest hedge funds in the world. Mm-hmm. And and they, they're like anyone else. They get up and they try their best to figure out what's going on. Sometimes they make good decisions. Sometimes they don't. They don't. And at the end of the day, you know, a lot of them are very, very good. But they still face the same wall that we all face, and that's that wall that separates the present from the future. They don't know what's going to happen, and you just try to do the best you can. And what, because I, I'm aware of that, I want to make sure I don't make any financial decisions that, if I'm wrong, can be catastrophic. Mm-hmm. 
And, and that's, people give the hedge fund model a lot of grief and, and, and perhaps because their fees are so high that it's rightly deserved. But at the end of the day, their model is their business is gone if they lose too much money. Right. And, and so they're very, very cognizant of not making any decisions that could cause a 5% down year or a right. 10% down year. And that's called risk management. Right. And, and it, that ties into one thing you said earlier about your benchmarks is that you see this so much in the – whether it's in the, the, the managed fund space, in the mutual, just in the mutual fund space. If you're a mutual fund portfolio manager, I mean you've got to have your eye on the benchmark. And what happens is that you know if you, you – to repeat what you said earlier, earlier, if you're down 10 percent and the market is down 8 to 12, you're not getting fired. But if you're down 10% and the benchmark is up 10, you're done. And so everything is against this benchmark. And so that can that can lead to people taking too much risk and too much swings to beat the benchmark cra- like crazy. And it can lead to portfolio managers saying, I can't underperform the benchmark too significantly. And the disconnect that I see and, and the way that I've, at least so far, in trying to learn about these things that we're talking about and trying to rationalize it – the only path through it that I can see is the path of financial planning. And I think that's a generic term that most people don't understand. But the way that I use it is by saying, look at somebody's individual situation. And you know, a simple example would be, let's assume that, let's assume that the S&P 500 index averages, I'm going to make up 10%. Okay? For every, depends on the year that it, that it flies around. But it does that with a lot of volatility. But if you've got, I'll use an extreme example, $10 million, and you need $100,000 a year to live on, you don't need the benchmark returns. You just need enough returns to hit your financial goals. Now, on the flip side, if you've got $100,000 of investment assets, and for some reason you need $100,000 of, 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 um, of income, and you're going to try to do that off your portfolio, there's no way to do it. It's not possible. So you're going to be doing something different because if the benchmark of 10%, if the benchmark, if the S&P is returning 10%, that's not going to hit your, that's not going to hit your financial goals. So the path through it, I see, is by applying some of this good financial planning science. And I think of that in things like flexibility. Just the, the, the reason why it's so important to be out of debt or the reason why it's so important to have cash reserves and to be able to live on a low-cost lifestyle is because it keeps you from having to make the big mistake. I remember a, uh, a friend of mine uh, was laid off from a sales job, and this person was living a high lifestyle in, in Wellington, Florida, kids in private schools, nice house. He was laid off from a job unexpectedly, and he had a little bit of reserves, but after he went through the next few months, he was so over-leveraged. And, and by over-leveraged, we often go to the extreme and say, well, he just had tons of... No, he was just living a normal lifestyle, but he had to make such major costs to his lifestyle because he hadn't built in any any reserves. So the same thing in financial planning. When you're a financial planner and you're sitting there with a 65-year-old retiree and they're telling me, they're, te- they're saying, you know, I need, a, I need a 7% off my portfolio to maintain your lifestyle, uh, my, my lifestyle every year, and I need it for the next 30 years. That's a very uncomfortable place to be versus with the uh, client saying, you know, I can, I'd like, it'd be nice if I could spend 7%. But I could be fine on two, and I've got a lot of flexibility in my. Uh, I've got a lot of flexibility in my expenses. I'm okay with changing my lifestyle from year to year if I need to, so I can respond to the market conditions. And that's the message that I'm trying to develop: is the connection with good financial planning techniques 
to acknowledge the realities of the investment world because people are often looking for a solution from the investment world that is often unachievable, a sense of certainty that you can't quite get. Right. Yeah, I agree. And, and I, I, I do think flexibility is key. And, and that's, that's one reason. I mean, Because you can make a really good financial case for why having a mortgage makes sense. With, right. with mortgage rates so low, with the after-tax cost of borrowing, and what what you could do with the money if if you know why should I pay off my mortgage when I can invest it and make more? Well, we paid off our mortgage. Oh, it's been a number of years, but and, and my my spouse Lapril was always saying we should we should get out of debt. We should get out of debt, and I mm-hmm. can make all the great financial reasons why that's a crummy financial decision. And and one day it just finally hit me just just feeling unencumbered. And right. not having to worry about it. Because I really like one-time decisions where I can make a decision and not worry about it ever again. And one reason I hate being in debt, I just hate making payments because then i got to <laughs> remember to make the stupid payment. You and me both. It's that peace of mind, but it's the flexibility and the ability to adapt at, as markets change. The, the term I use is leading, living on the leading edge of the present. Yes, I can't predict the future but I can be right on the edge and adapt as things change, be it the market, be it the economy, et cetera. That's an interesting, I was just writing your quote down, living on the leading edge of the present. I like that. Uh, you're right about, you're right about the mortgage. Uh, you know, my wife and I have the same exact conversation and, you know, we have a mortgage and I look at it and I say, you know, should I pay extra? Should I not? And I think, th- and that's where it comes down to, uh, you know, t- I bring financial planning back into it because even just the mistakes I've made with my mortgage, you know, when I got the house, I was like, okay, I want to make sure I have a low mortgage. I'm not willing to pay PMI, put a bunch of money uh, down on the house. And then that left me cash poor due to some other decisions I made too. And it left me cash poor at exactly the wrong time. And uh, I've learned this work with clients as well is that in some ways, if you can going into retirement with a paid off house is great if you have a lot of other assets. Going into retirement with a paid-off house and minimal other assets is doesn't work. Um, you know, so you have to kind of adjust the plan. And people are often looking for that strong numbers-related thing. And you're right. You know, I, I, the the conclusion that I've come to with me and my wife is that it probably will buy us a much happier life and a much happier marriage just to have the the risk and the peace of being debt-free as compared to the potential financial return that I could make by going with the, uh, the aggressive route. Uh, it's hard well, to quantify. Right. And, and, and if, if some, I agree, not everyone should pay off the mortgage, but if, if somebody's in that, I have a friend that we just had this discussion because he had enough assets that he could pay off his mortgage and perhaps still might be a little cash poor, but the solution is pay off the mortgage, take out an equity line. Mm-hmm, right. Use it, right. So you got that spare reserve just in case, but you also have the peace of mind that you don't you don't have a mortgage. Right. Absolutely. Let's switch gears and talk about portfolio management. What was the path that you learned once you joined the firm that you joined with that with little background? What was the path that you followed? Uh, whether it was prescribed for you or that you set out for yourself to learn about the skills of portfolio management? 
Well, at, at our firm, we had hundreds and hundreds of managers come through our office every year. And, and I learned by, by taking my notebook and sitting down with a manager, a stock manager, or, you know, somebody that flew, we were based in Ohio at the time that flew in from New York. And I would just ask questions. And it would just, that was my way to, to learn as much as I could about, all right, how do you pick a stock? And, and, and I would occasionally buy companies that these managers would recommend. And it didn't take me too long to realize that most professional money managers don't outperform their benchmark. It, it's very, very hard to come up with 40 great stock ideas. Mm-hmm. I come up with five and they might do well, but coming up with 40 or 30 and, and 30 stocks for an institutional portfolio, that's considered concentrated. Mm-hmm. Most of them have 40 or 50. And, and so you, you sort of learn that, but I thought, well, here, here's what was eye-opening for me. This was in 2001, so I'd been at it six years, just trying to figure out and thinking, well, I really want to manage money as opposed to make recommendations. And so I came up with the brilliant idea, at least I thought it was brilliant at the time, I'm going to take the best stocks, you know, each managers, our top managers, I'm going to take their top 10 holdings and I'm going to create a portfolio. So our best managers, their best ideas, where they have the highest conviction, and I'm going to create this portfolio. And by then, I'd moved to Idaho, and I used this software program that's called Borrow, which is about a six-figure software program that money managers will, will use to sort of optimize their portfolios to make sure they're not taking any type of unattended bets. It's, very, it's a risk pr- program. It's factor-based. It's very, very complicated. But I thought, all right, I'm going to take these holdings from these managers and I'm going to create a portfolio. And it, it had maybe 60 to 70 stocks, but they're best ideas. So they weren't diluted. It was the best ones. Mm-hmm. So I started back-testing it, calculating the performance relative to the benchmark. And lo and behold, there was no excess return. It could not outperform the benchmark with their best ideas. And, and this, I remember leaving for lunch and sitting by the river just just really bummed because, I mean, I was already dreaming <laughs> of a new house and a car because this was going to make us rich. Cause you found the next dogs house. of the Dow. <laughs> That's right. This, these, either, it may, either is it the two things it could mean. Either we were lousy at researching managers, which was our business to pick the best managers. So that, that was a hard pill to swallow. Or there was something else going on. And, and I realized that most of what passes for excess return for managers relative to their benchmark is not security selection. It is factor exposures that are built into the portfolio. It's just their plain value tilt or, or, or yield advantage. Mostly it's value. It just happened to be buying cheaper stocks. And so I thought, well, I can replicate my own factor exposures just using exchange traded funds. In other words, if I see some area of the market that's in expenses, such as emerging markets, I can overweight that, or I can overweight growth or overweight value. And so I created a portfolio that way and put the, it started back testing it, and lo and behold, it worked. And that's why this was, we started marketing that. Well, we, we ran it for a year. A partner and I put up the money to, to get the, the track record in place. We started marketing in 2004 as this outsourced CIO solution. And initially, it was all passive. And then we started adding some managers, but not 
adding managers for their security selection skills, simply adding them because they had the factor exposures we want. And, and that's, that's how I manage money, continue to manage money. I, it's less about picking individual securities. It's more about just getting exposure to segments of the market that are cheap. And, and I find that the, that's what many of the best managers actually do, particularly hedge fund managers. Those that are good, it's not because they're necessarily brilliant at choosing securities. Most of them just go into a market that they find attractive. And an example, I had a client that for many years invested with Seth Klarman at the Baupost Group. And he is probably one of the premier value managers in the country. And I would go and meet with him once a year and just ask questions. I mean, it was, it was really fortunate to be able to do that. And here's a shop that they, they're very, very diversified, so they're not concentrated. He'll hold up to 40 to 50% cash, but he's waiting for panic to set in to a certain segment of the market. And, that, and if he doesn't understand what that segment is, then he'll hire people and learn about it and learn everything he can about that and eventually invest. But it's very much contrarian and being willing to buy what people are running away from once you understand it. What would be define <clears throat> when you use the term factor uh, factor selection? Define some of the factors that you uh, were using in that strategy. Industry factors, um, again, growth value, small mid cap. Like, what would be some of the factors in your? No, it, it was mainly price earn like price earnings ratio, price to book, just value. Okay. What what was cheap relative to its historical average? Okay. So it wasn't even we didn't even do. It wasn't even as complicated complicated as doing sectors. Mm-hmm. Right. It was simply going into emerging markets or going into REITs <laughs> or going into, and, you know, one of the genesis of this strategy is back in the, the late 90s, if you recall, maybe you recall, everybody wanted to index their portfolio mm-hmm. and, and managers were having, they all wanted to go into the SP 500 because it done extremely well and no manager could outperform. And I, and I looked at in the institutional world, you're, you're always comparing a manager to their universe. So if you're a large cap or large company value manager, you're compared to other value managers. And whether you're above the median or in the top quartile, sort of the the top 25%. And and what I found very interesting is the reason why most managers trail the SP 500 is their average market capitalization or the average size of the company that they hold is smaller than the S&P. Right. And in the late 1990s, it was the, it was the GEs of the world. It was the big, big caps that, that were leading the market. And so I thought, well, hey, I'm just, if we're going to index, let's just put 80% in the S&P, 20% in mid-cap index, and we'll run it that way. Mm-hmm. And, and that strategy outperforms active managers all the time because right. – that's what an active manager is, but you have the fee advantage. And that's, that's where I thought, well, you can structure portfolio without worrying about which security to pick as long as you just sort of overweight areas that tend to be cheap. And it doesn't really matter what measure you use. It's not, it's not magic. It's not rocket science. It's just simply going to where areas that are attractive. Now, it's harder today because there's not a whole lot of stuff that's attractive, and that's one of the challenges. 
Is that a strategy you were talking in your asset allocation show? And I know that you're planning another show on what you're doing today. Is that what you're continuing today for your own personal account? It is. That's 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 exactly what I do. And I just I move in. But I'm I'm much more fearful than I used to be because mm-hmm. I, I don't have I don't want to work in the sense of having to go out and get a job. And so right. I, I cannot afford to lose 10 percent. Sure. And and I try to make that point in the show is, is for a lot of for most people, modern portfolio theory is fine. Mm-hmm. They have a fair amount of stock exposure because if the market falls 30 to 40 percent, they're not ruined. They can mm-hmm. continue. They're continuing to add to their nest egg. I'm not in that position. And so I I move around and most of investing is just waiting. Even even when we as an institutional money manager, we would only make two to three trades a year. And which would drive some of our fellow uh, my partners or even clients, because the the bias in portfolio management is you got to make changes. Right. If you're not making changes, what are we paying you for? Right. But most of a lot of portfolio management is just just waiting around for something to happen right and for people to panic and it it happens i mean and so i that's what i do now do you buy the efficient market hypothesis yes and no i i think at a a macro level markets you can't have a bubble like you had in the internet bubble and say markets are efficient. Mm-hmm. Mark, pe- investors can get greedy. They can, they're irrational and they get fearful. And so on a macro basis, I find that no markets aren't efficient. You can find ways to take advantage of that. And, and one of the analogies I use is I call it catching popping corn. If you, if you have a, basket of popcorn or in a popcorn popper and you put it under a heat source you don't have to sit there picking a stock is like picking which piece of popcorn is going to pop first Mm -hmm. very very challenging but if your basket or your popcorn is filled with kernels that are cheap that are undervalued then it's embedded with positive surprises and you can capture that and that's where there's inefficiency in the market being able to capture these baskets of undervalued securities using an ETF, and just collecting it as they pop. But most investment managers are focusing on picking out which kernel is going to pop. And that is what's very, very difficult because what I have found is the more specific your prediction in terms of what you think is going to happen with the company, the more likely it's going to be wrong. Something happens that you just didn't anticipate because the world's just way too complex to to figure it out. And so maybe, I mean, there, there are a few that are very, very good at it, can, that are good at security select, selection, just, just have a knack. But it, it is very, very much the minority mm-hmm. because it's just, so much, it's just so much more complex than it used to be. Mm-hmm. And it's so much more competitive. I mean, back when, in one of your episodes, you had mentioned a book by Benjamin Graham, mm-hmm. or even the early days of Warren Buffett. Right. It was so much easier oh, yeah. because 80% of the trades were done by retail investors, individuals. Right. Now, 80 90% are institutions, many of which are computers going about doing it. And so you got that whole complexity. So you're, you're, whenever you buy a stock, somebody's selling it to you. Right. 
And, and in today's market, more likely it's somebody that knows way more than, than you'll ever know about it. I mean, this whole concept of Peter Lynch, well, go buy what you know, you know, go to the right. mall and see something interesting and, and buy it. And then you go out and buy it and you find, well, there's 50 Wall Street analysts that cover it. Right. And are also at the mall, but also have data in terms of inventory and everything else. It's just really challenging. Now, it could work out. And I, I don't say people shouldn't buy stocks because it's fun. Investing can be fun. Just never invest in a way where you always, if you're going to put money in a stock, one stock, be prepared to lose it all. Mm-hmm. And not, that's not the most likely scenario, but it's the most extreme case. And if you go in with that mindset, well, what if I lost all that money? Then, and then, then scale your position based on that. I kind of have a personal challenge myself right now, and I'm having to, I'm considering adjusting what I'm doing with my own portfolio and my own holdings. Up till now, I have simply used a mutual fund approach. But the trouble is, is that I've developed some increasing disgust and reservations about some of the, about many of the larger corporations. And I really struggle with the fact that I really don't want to, uh, I really don't want to own their stock and I don't want to support what they do. I I really, I look at some of the actions of some of the largest, um, largest corporations list, you know, listed in wall street and they're making up just due to the, the market cap, they're making up a good percentage of the money that I have invested in them. And though it's not under my control, the, the manager is, is doing that. And I really struggle with a personal desire to not support their business any longer. And it's pushing me into a direction I've never gone because I've never had those, I've never had those like reservations in the past. I've always simply gone, well, that's no big deal. I'll profit off of whatever and do my own thing. But now, like my conscience bothers me and more and more and more. And the trouble is that it's not the kind of thing where, you know, I, I it's not the kind of thing that, it's not the kinds of things that would bother most people, uh, you know, as far as, okay, go buy some socially conscious fund. The things that bother most people don't bother me. Um, you know, if I, I won't give any examples, but the, many of the things that really bo- that run those. So the problem is I'm, I'm t- t- tending towards the idea that I need to take back control of my portfolio. And so it's going to require skills that I've never developed. Uh, but, then how to develop that that skill set for myself is is challenging. So, um, well, do you have I, any comments I, on that? Yeah, I, I think you're, you're essentially you're building a customized, socially responsible portfolio, and and there there's actually a company that just came out recently. Where you can, and I'll, I'll have to email you because I don't remember the name, but it's a it's a new way where you can actually choose your own baskets. In other words, you can. Build, kind of build your own ETF based on the securities that you want. And, I mean, you can create your own index fund, right? Interesting. The, the, the idea is as long as there's enough holdings in it that any one holding isn't going to, to ruin performance, you could cre- tech, theoretically create your own index fund and replicate what it is that you want. The technology didn't used to be there, right. but now with with the technology, they can they can combine trades, et cetera. And and I'll have the, the company just came out in the last month or so, and I just don't remember the name, and I don't know how what it did, but 
it sounds like a fairly robust platform. I'd be and interested that in that. That would be one way to do it. Right, because I about six months ago, I was talking with some of my buddies, and I said, listen, here's my idea. Let's let's take... Uh, let's take what the robo advisors is doing. Let's take what the you know. Let's take what Betterman is doing or Wealthfront or some of these robo advisors, where they're basically creating and some sometimes customized portfolios. Why doesn't somebody use exactly the same technology? And let's just, let's let's stick with S and P five hundred. So let's say this this technology platform is going to trade the S and P five hundred, but you can go in and you can deselect any companies. That you wish to not own. So, for example, I don't have it. I don't want to own Monsanto stock. I'm not a fan of what they've done. I have a serious ethical issue. So, if I can go in and go in and I can delete Monsanto stock, or if I don't want to own GE, I can go in and I can just get rid of that, and then you know have some parameters in place that could warn you. Okay, now we're getting too concentrated. So, therefore, the the performance of the index. So, I had that idea some months ago. But if somebody's doing it, that would be awesome to know about. Yeah. Uh- well, how you describe it is actually a great idea, and I don't know if they're doing it exactly like that, but you can create your own – I think they call them sleeves is what they were and, and do it the way you want. But you're right. You're, it's interesting with some of these – you used the term robo-advisors, the, these online platforms, mm-hmm. and, and we, you go back to modern portfolio theory. And, and I think a lot of them have changed their sites, mm-hmm. but it's sort of like they built the technology, which mm-hmm. is really slick. And really cool interface. And then it's sort of like, well, how are we going to manage the money now? Right. And then they then they came across this new thing that they had never heard of called modern portfolio theory. And, <laughs> and, and, and tax started, loss harvesting. <laughs> well, well, right. And it was so, and it's it's a great they're great companies for individuals with small balances because it allows them mm-hmm. to, to effectively a lot of the behavioral stuff to invest. But I mean, I talk to my old partners all the, all the time and say, why, why, why aren't you doing this? Because we already have model portfolios. Mm-hmm. Team up because the we, I don't know, but it, they're, cause it's, it's a hard business though. Oh, yeah. We, as I mentioned, we've worked with financial planners and when you're, and so we had our institutional, so we, I, we started, my partner and I put up the money. So we had less than a hundred thousand dollars. We put in the, we did a track record. We grew it to two billion when I left, and it's a lot easier to grow to two billion when you're getting fifty million chunks at a time. Absolutely. But when our financial planner business, where it's coming in at fifty thousand dollars, five thousand dollars, you have to have thousands and thousands of clients. And when I think one, I think it was Betterment mentioned that they had reached the five hundred million dollar milestone, which seems like a lot until you multiply that by the Point two or point three percent. They're mm-hmm. they're not making a lot of money, and they have a lot of people. They're losing money. Yeah, and because it, it takes a long, long time to grow your assets when you're growing it in such small chunks. Yeah, but it's, it's an interesting model. It certainly is. I've gone on and I've read their ADVs, and it's they're they're far from profitable. And right. it's it's but but the thing is, it's a much needed it's a much needed evolution and. Uh, I'll steal the idea from my friend Michael Kitsis. He is probably the most clear. I think he's probably got the most accurate analysis of the future for that side of the business, is that the future is to use the use that technology as the back office technology for the financial planners. Uh, because that's the technology. Like, it, it should be 
automated like they're doing it. Uh, right. Now, the trouble, and here's my issue with much of the industry, is that portfolio management is not financial planning. And so what happens is that this word financial advisor, which is a leftover word from the last few decades, which can can describe anything from a mortgage broker to a budget consultant to a uh, you know a hedge fund manager, really, it's just this catch-all word that doesn't mean anything. And so you know I kind of I chuckle and I wish them the best. I'm glad for the competition because it the competition is inherently good because it keeps the rest of the industry adjusting and on their toes and keeps all of us working hard to serve our clients instead of you know that famous quote I don't remember who it was but you know where are all the you know here's all the brokers yachts but where are the clients yachts um, I like that I like that I like that it puts the pressure on us but you know trading your portfolio more efficiently for 20 basis points is not what's going to result in your wealth. That's just one aspect of what may, what may result in your wealth. But if you're putting $100 a month in, you're not going to get wealthy no matter how many, you know, what no matter whether your fees are 5 basis points or 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 100 basis points, it doesn't matter. Uh, at well, least that's my opinion. It matters, but it's not going to be that's not the key driver. No, it's not. It's it's the behavioral issues and well, and and the reality is most people are not going to be wealthy. Right. I mean, you, you look at the demographic data, and, and, and most people are not going to be able to retire in the traditional sense. And it's starting to come through in the surveys that people are realizing that. The, I looked at a survey the other day where it showed, I was done by the Federal Reserve, and they, they had asked all different age cohorts, what basically your vision of a retirement. And I think it's sort of that 60-year-old, only 15% felt like their retirement was they were going to quit their job and live off their investing. If you go to the 20-year-olds, 35% said that. So the, the closer people get to retiring, they realize that, well, they can't afford it. And, and one of my mantras is, is live like you're already retired. And, Amen. And what, do, what do you mean have, by that? Expand that. Well, what I mean by that is have recognize, choose something to do in your life that you enjoy. And mm -hmm. learn to maximize your well-being with the minimum of consumption. So reduce your expenses, not so you're feeling impoverished, but that you're having a quality life with as little consumption as possible. And make sure the income you're earning is you're doing it by maximizing your, your well-being in terms of finding satisfaction, finding joy in what you're doing. And if you get those two pieces right, you can continue that. For decades. I mean, you, you mentioned it in, I think, in one of your podcasts. You like what you're doing. You could see yourself doing that to your 90s. Right. And, and maybe after you do it 30 years, you won't feel that way. <laughs> I, I assume that going in. It. And so this concept of you know, why wait until you're in your 60s to, to, to start living your dreams? Figure out how to structure your life now so you could do that. And I, I have these conversations with my kids because I have two of them are college age. One's in high school. And I'll be severely disappointed if they are working, if they're in a job and they, they dread getting up Monday morning and going to work. Because that, that's just a miserable way to live. And that doesn't mean everybody's got to start their own business, but find it. And, and it takes experiment to figure out what that is. What is the best work environment for you? But find it, minimize your consumption. And don't worry. I mean, obviously continue to save, but... The live like you're retired is the idea is just the freedom, because that's what retirement, when people think of retirement, they think of freedom. 
Right. Find the freedom today and live that way today. My wife and I talk about this, and one of the things that I learned years ago, and I was trying to figure out what retirement meant to me, and I recognized that the key thing for me is I don't like having to set an alarm clock in the morning. And I recognize that when I set, have to set an alarm clock to be at an office or something at a certain time, that makes me feel anxious, and I just, I just don't like that. And just through making some simple changes by adjusting my schedule and by working from home, now at the age I'm – not, I'm not yet 30, and at this age, I've gotten to the point where I don't have to set an alarm clock. And I'm constantly – now – the interesting thing about it is I find myself getting up far earlier than I've ever gotten up, waking up excited to go and work on something, excited to go and re- research. A, a, you know, it's primarily for this show. I love doing the show uh, because I can go and research something that I'm interested in, and I can I get excited that I can share what I'm interested in with someone else, and I'll get a great email from a from a listener saying, "Man, I really appreciated that." Uh, but it's 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 like I hit that I I, I was able to hit that at goal of not having to set an alarm clock to wake up and it had nothing to do with having two million dollars in the bank it's better oh, design yeah, I agree. yeah it's a great feeling isn't it it's yeah, awesome it's, it's fun now i'm you're probably a morning person like me so you don't <laughs> set the alarm clock you're probably up at 6 30 anyway. right <laughs> but it yeah i i i hate because i used to hate having to set because i worked at home i telecommuted for 10 years in idaho so i never set an alarm clock unless i had to go fly somewhere. And I absolutely hate it. So I would having to get up. I hated that. And the other thing was flying out anywhere on Sunday to a business meeting on Monday. I right. considered it. If I couldn't control my schedule better than that, that I had to leave my family on a weekend, then, then I was failing. And getting rid of those two things has been very, very helpful. Right. Did you set out in your financial planning at the age of, uh, in your thirties, when you made the switch to that company, did you set out with a goal of early early retirement? No, no. I, I I'll be the first to admit that that I got lucky, mm-hmm. and in the sense that two things worked out. One, well, well you, no, there was some luck involved. Luck is partially recognizing opportunities and taking advantage of them, but sometimes things just work out. And mm-hmm. here's I started that investment product where we were using these factor exposures. It was the first year of the track record was 2003, and we had overweighted small company and emerging markets, and small cap stocks were up 37%. Now, we got great performance that first four or five years, and that's what clients look at when they choose investment managers. So that helped build a business. Mm-hmm. I knew a hedge fund, a small cap hedge fund manager that started their business that same year. Small cap stocks were up 37%. It's a hedge fund manager of 20%. They made millions. They were set for life. I wasn't anywhere near that, <laughs> but I had a good track record. The second thing we did is in the late in 2002, we had sold our company to a bank and to get the founders so they could exit. And so here we're owned by this bank in Evansville, Indiana. And, and, and I, we had spent years trying to sell this company. I mean, we were very close to selling to three major banks and their stocks crashed all at the same time. So we didn't sell. So here comes this bank in Evansville, buys us. They're paying what we want. They paid a great fee. And then three years later, they're sort of like, why, why did we buy this company? We haven't integrated them. So they let us buy it back for half the price wow. that they sold it to. And then we went out and we borrowed 80% of the money to buy it. And 
so the combination of that product doing well, which really helped their revenue, and buying cheap, we were able to to basically, uh, well, it turned out very well. I mean, not enough, and I'm not by any means fabulously wealthy. I just, I have a nest egg that if I can earn five to six percent, then, and don't do anything stupid, then I should be able to hopefully live the rest of my life. But that, that's 30 to 40 years. So I, I mean, there's part of me that says, I can't even imagine that. Mm-hmm. And, and that is back to live like you retired today. People cannot even fathom what it's like to live for the next 30 to 40 years and how to make their money last. Right. And I finally just stopped the, thinking about it. I'm just, all I can focus on is this year. Am I, did I earn my inflation plus 3% this year? And if I did, then I'm fine. But and then, you know, we try some other stuff, like sell stuff on eBay and right. <laughs> do Airbnb or things like that. But so, yeah, I didn't start out. So ultimately, to, to answer your question is, yeah, I sold my stake back to my company. I mean, they still pay me every year for the next four or five years. So hopefully they don't go under. Mm-hmm. Keep those tabs on that. Right. And, and that's what it was. So there was, so it was taking advantage of opportunity and taking advantage of luck. So most of my ability or, or, or wealth, I guess, or my nest egg was from that one decision and, and taking, it was leverage. And, and which is why a lot of people, the way to earn wealth is owning a business. I mean, that continues to be the case, but most people don't have that opportunity. That doesn't mean you know, have, being wealthy is not the end all and be all. It's structuring your life like you are where you don't have to set your alarm if you don't want and having the freedom to pursue what you want and much of that comes from minimizing your consumption right i've read so many stories of people figuring out ways to do things in in what seem like impossible circumstances on the surface and whether it's you know, the people who I read one book a few months ago and this guy, he described the situation where uh, he wrote a book on van dwelling and he described the situation. He got divorced. He lost all of his money uh, in the divorce and he was so broke. He ha- he moved in. He bought a, a box truck and started living in it, lived in it for eight years, grew to like it, got married again, wound up some years later getting completely um, getting completely, you know, getting divorced again, lost all his money again. <laughs> so then he just decided, you know what, I'm going to go back to this lifestyle. And he lives all over BLM, Bureau of Land Management land, out, all out in the West. And he lives in a van. And But reading his book was interesting. I don't want to do that. But reading his book was interesting because for him, he felt like he was happy, like for the first time in his life. And he loved the lifestyle, but he's living on a small amount of money. Uh, I've experienced that with a client. I had a client down here in West Palm Beach, and he asked me to talk to his brother. I talked to his brother. His brother was living on on Social Security disability, uh, just over $1,000 a month of income. But he's living on a sailboat, and he's figured out a way with nothing, with no money, to be able to to live a lifestyle that, that he liked. And one of the things that I observe is that if you have that resilience and if you've made your choices consciously, that resilience and that mental like switch is the deal that's that's the most important thing not necessarily just the portfolio returns 
Because once you've felt with, okay, I'm willing to change something, I'm willing to you know, go back to work if I need to or do something, then you can more rationally approach the rest of it and say, now let me work hard to make sure that I don't wind up uh, living on $1,000 a month. Uh, and that's what I, I mean, I hear the theme everywhere. And I'll tell you, uh, you've been, how long, have, how long ago was that that you sold the company and quote unquote retired? Uh, two and a half years. Right. I'll bet you within a decade, you'll be doing something making, you know, a ton of money just for fun, whether it's your writing or the podcast or something, just because every story I've searched out and researched, I found the person doing something like that, where the opportunity just come to them and someone says, hey, would you consult with me on this project or this is an interesting project and you can do it on your terms? Um, I bet it'll happen. Well, well, perhaps, and, and <laughs> that would make it easier to fathom <laughs> living 30 to 40 years. I, I, you know, you, sort, you sometimes worry about that. That's a long time. to. So maybe we'll see. We'll see. I mean, I've tried other businesses. When I, when I first left FEG, or my, my prior company, I was going to effectively be like one of these robo-advisors. I mean, mm-hmm. I, and I had built a platform, and, and I had got my... Performance track record audited, mm-hmm. which that was basically was my 401k or my, my self-directed 401k. I mean, that's what I, right. that was my track record. And I started blogging. I literally started this company the day after I quit. I launched the site the day after. And, and I did it for a month and I, I absolutely hated it. It's like, how, why? Because what I found was I was still managing money, even though it was mo- my own, but I was doing it competitively. Right. Because I couldn't make it because every time I had to make a decision, I'd have to describe it to my quote unquote clients. Right. And and I shut it down before fortunately anyone hired me because here I was doing the exact same thing. And and it's taken me a couple years to decompress to because one challenge of being in the financial industry is it's all about money. And it's very and you just you sort of look at at everything through the eyes of money, not, not in a greedy way, but just, just, you're just always how you look at stuff. How does it work? And it's taken a couple years to sort of sit back and decompress. And there was a time that I finally just completely didn't do anything with investing or writing about finance. And I only got back into it earlier this year is because the local paper said, would you write a weekly column? And so I thought, well, okay, I could write a weekly column. And so I started reading it, writing it. And I thought, well, I'll just I can build websites. I learned to build a website. I'll go ahead and put it on my website. Mm-hmm. And then I remembered I, I, I've always missed public speaking. I like getting out and speaking to clients and speaking at conferences. So I thought, well, I could do that with a podcast because I'd, I'd done webcasts before. Mm-hmm. And that's why I sort of did the podcast. And it's, so we'll see. I mean, you never know how it's going to turn out. But you just keep, keep experimenting. You keep trying things. See if you like it. And that's what I tell my kids. You just keep trying stuff. And eventually you'll create the lifestyle that you want. Life is an adventure. And I'm convinced like one of the things that the one of the notions that hasn't served me well so far is this idea that there's a right way to live. And I know it took me a few years. And again, I'm still young. I'm still figuring it out. But I had to make a mental shift from trying to do things the right way, follow the right path and just simply try to live in the sounds so hairy fairy try to live in the now 
and enjoy the adventure and, and enjoy it. And over the last few years, I've been working hard at it. My wife has helped me so much. She's really good at, at kind of just being present. And I'm always thinking, well, what's up? What? Ten years down the road, we got we got a plan. we got to make this happen. And she's good <laughs> at saying, relax. And I'm getting better at it. And I'm telling you, I'm happier for it. And and I'm I'm happier with having the risk and just saying, I don't know where the future is going to take me. And I'm okay with that. Life's not a competition. I don't have to have a bigger 401k balance than someone else. I don't have to have a fancier car. I don't have to be more successful than all of my friends when I go back to my high school reunion. I don't have to have life figured out and I don't have to have all the answers. And the last few years of my life, as I've been working hard on that, has been They've been exciting, and it, it's fun. It's the adventure. It's almost like I feel like the explorers of the U.S. or other continents must have felt, whether it was 100 years ago or 200 years ago or wherever, when you're heading out for something unknown. And I always tried so much to have my life charted out perfectly, and now I'm getting a little bit of taste of that unknown, and it's it's fun. It's an adventure. So I, I'm I'm learning that, and and. That just that simple mind shift is, is helping me. So, well, I I agree. And and you go back to your your friend that lives in a van. And one of the things I try to share with people is you can live like you're already rich. Right. And I've, I've met with and I've known a lot of rich people. I've been in their houses. And and when it comes down to it, all it takes to be rich is to have the freedom which your friend has. And it, it takes lots of daylight, right? You can live in a four-bedroom house if you have, or not a four-bedroom house, a four-room house if you have good lighting. Right. And and you can have as much fun driving a 15-year-old sports car as you can going out and, and leasing a new Tesla. Right. And, I mean, whatever it is that gives you a thrill, it can be done cheaper, particularly in, in today's interconnected world. And it could be as simply as living on BLM land and, and driving a van. Right. That guy's rich. Right. And he's happy. He does what he wants with his time. And that's the like when you have control over your time, as long as you're willing, like it and you're you're content with it. Because some people would say that's nuts. But if you're content with it, I mean I love to go camping and you go camping, you sleep on the ground in a tent, it's uncomfortable. Comfort is not the point. The point is that sense of freedom, exactly. Describe uh, I was trying to wrap up, but I actually would um uh, but I listened to a, something you said on one of your recent shows, and I went back and told my wife I had never considered what you pointed out with the amount of light on perpendicular windows. Talk real quick. Uh, I know you have a whole show on it, but mention real quick what, your theory on how you live rich, what you were just describing, because I think that's so interesting to me. Well, in terms of housing, heard, how to live rich, well, how to live rich housing, housing. There's a book called The Pattern Language by Christopher Alexander, and it, I, I think it's still in print, but... It was just it was a book on urban design, and he just had different. It's very easy to read. Different rules for how to create a house, and we've we've built houses before, and we've modeled houses before, and I've I've stayed in enough places to realize, hey, what really makes a difference in a house is is having light on perpendicular walls. So if you got you got a, I'm, on, I'm in my basement right now, and we have a one window on one wall and on a perpendicular wall and because the light rays pass together. And, and if you just think about that as, as you go to whatever room you're living in, where do you spend the most time? Most people gravitate to the room with the best light and invariably it's the room that has windows on two sides. And, and so we, we sold our house, we went about a couple of years ago, so I knocked on the door and wanted to buy our house. 
And so we bought, we found this really cool house, but they had no windows on the south side. Wow. And the first thing we do before we moved in is had a contractor knock a hole in the brick and put a window in. And it, it just makes a huge difference. So one of my dreams is to figure out how small a house can I live in? And, and I, I'm down to four bedrooms. If I could make, or not four bedrooms, like four <laughs> rooms. If I could do a house with just four rooms, it would great light. I could be as happy as can be. And because I've, I've been, I spent a lot of time in Mexico and some of those houses are very, very small. A lot of the Mayans lived in one room kind of casetas. Right. Now, needed to put more windows in them, but it can be done. So, I mean, that's kind of my concept. Like, I, I, one of the things I'm fascinated about is how to live as rich as possible on as little as possible, but still have all the tangible benefits. And you don't need a huge mansion. You can do it in one room if it's got great light and a nice view. And, that, and, I, and there's different – you can do the same thing with travel. You can hack travel. My son spent the entire summer living in Japan and Korea – on about fifteen hundred bucks. Wow, that's and awesome! Doing hostels and stuff, and mm-hmm. and living with people. He chopped wood for a Buddhist monk for three weeks in Japan. Got room and board out of it, and things like that. So it can be done, and it's more challenging that way to replicate the experience of being rich without the money. I find that fun. I find it more fun than working a job I don't like and uh, <laughs> working a job I don't like just so I can support what someone else's idea is. I'd rather, I'd rather have the adventure of, of figuring it out. You better hurry up and do your show because I've got a show planned on how to live rich. So I'm going to not look at your feed until I get my show out and we'll see who beats one another. That's fine. We need need lots of people (laughs) sharing that message. I remember Mark Ford was always so insistent. It's like, and I've heard it from others too, but buy the best mattress you can. You know, you spend, let's call it eight hours a day in, in, uh, in bed. And for, I don't know, a couple thousand bucks, let's say, maybe as much as 10,000, if you buy the fanciest bed you can and put the best linens on, you can live like a billionaire for 10,000 bucks at the, at the absolute extravagant level. And it's something we usually don't think about. What do you see? Cheap mattress, big house. Why don't you have a small room with light with, with big windows and have an expensive mattress? Uh, that's how you live rich. So. Well, I agree. And, and one of the interesting challenges is to figure out exactly what's the price point where you're no longer paying for quality and suddenly you're right. paying for advertising. And, and that's the other thing that I'm always trying to figure out. What exactly, what is a good shirt cost, right? I've done some podcasts on it. It's not 15 bucks, right? but it's not 500 either. Somewhere between 500 and $15, there's the perfect price for a shirt. So the, manufa- the designer's getting a good amount of money or a decent profit. The quality is perfect. It feels great, but you don't have a ton of money going to advertising. Right. I found you some, with any product. I found some good ones at Costco the other day and I uh, tried a couple of their dress shirts with their Kirkland brand. And they, I always bought the, the, uh, the Brooks brothers, no iron. I despise ironing. I view ironing a waste of, as a waste of life. And, um, but I was really pleased with that. So what's your, what's your shirt brand? And then we'll, we're done. I because <laughs> I'm interested. What's buy, what's the secret? I buy mine off off eBay. Okay, and I'm not going to give you the brand because oh. nobody in the U.S. knows about it. <laughs> then I'm going to have your thousands of listeners competing against me <laughs> for this brand of shirt. But it's a designer out of the U.K. Awesome, and they're they're very well done. But you can I can pick them up off eBay for fifty bucks. And they they sell new for about three fifty, and that's kind of that. Which seems like who in the heck would pay that much for a shirt new? 
but if you we if you wear it once, you realize, hey, this this shirt wears different. It will last forever. Right. And but I I buy most of my clothes off eBay. Yeah. Used. I'd rather have five shirts that I loved. That's rich. Have five shirts that you love to wear and that you feel confident in, versus a closet full of stuff to the gills of clothes you don't like. Oh right, absolutely. David, thank you so much for coming on. You've got two sites, right? Moneyfortherestofus.net and .com. Explain where people can find you and and uh, and mention and uh, plug your show for for the audience. Yeah, the the podcast is at moneyfortherestofus.net. Somebody else got the .com, but hopefully someday they don't update us. Okay, so that's not your the .com. the .com is not your is yeah, not the your moneyfortherestofus.net. Okay. And then I also can be found at jdavidstein.com. Okay. Those two sites are linked, but they they both have similar content. But awesome. go to moneyfortherestofus.net, and that's where the podcast is and, and my most recent articles. Keep up the good work. I really like what you're doing, and we need more and more of it. So I Great. appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. All right, thanks, Joshua. I told you you'd like that one. <laughs> I enjoyed it. David, thanks again so much for coming on. I appreciate your making the time. I learned a lot. Point out a couple of the themes with David. Notice, first of all, David, uh, So I always just, just notice how people achieve financial independence. There are a variety of ways, and David's story brings out some new and unique aspects to the financial independence journey. But notice, first of all, he is highly educated, worked hard, studied hard, had some experiences and some jobs, and then made a shift to a, a, a business and a career that he was more interested in. Sounds like he started on the ground floor without any idea of really what he was getting into and then caught an interest and really got into a lot more. Uh, so just getting your foot in the door sometimes is really what's needed. But then once you get your foot in the door, you have to apply yourself to really learn a whole new set of skills. That's the secret. Uh, you know, it's amazing. One of the strategies I've thought of, I've never done this, but I, I have thought about this, that I certainly would be interested in doing, is if I needed a job, I would go and I would offer to work somewhere for free. Just go and offer to work for someone for free and do it for a period of time and then just be so incredibly valuable that they can't offer you enough money. I mean, really, that's really what it would be. So uh, David didn't necessarily go and work for free, but it's certainly something that I think would be – it's something that is worth noticing that he started on the ground floor. Notice that – according to him, he says, oh, I didn't really do much of anything special. You know, I kind of lucked into it. It's interesting if you listen and read books that are written about the wealthy, oftentimes you will find people talking about luck. And I personally do believe that there is such a thing as chance. I don't like the word luck because luck can mean many different things. But let's call it chance. Things can happen. But things can happen by chance. But you can do things to enhance yourself. For example, let's assume David had never invested any capital along the way. He'd never accumulated any savings. Is it so reasonable to think that he would have had a portfolio of his own to manage? Not so reasonable. Notice that he did work to get himself into a partnership position. You don't get to a partnership position and the opportunity to buy out a partnership share if you're not ready for it. So you have to do a lot of work along the way. Now, it sounds like he had some awesome uh, good timing with certain things. Notice he even attributed the rise in some of his portfolio value. Some of it's just the nature of the market, how things happen to be swinging at that point in time. But you got to be in a position to capitalize. He had set up the business. He had taken the risk of the entrepreneurship. And set himself up through the work. He had done the work, and he was ready and developed his skills, and he's figured out how to manage his investments in a way that makes sense to him. And that's the key. 
to understand what you own and why you own it and how to manage it. So I hope that that provided a, a little bit of an insight to you into the investment business. You know, I could have talked with him for hours, and who knows? Maybe we'll talk again at some point in the future. The world of institutional money management is a world I, am, I, I enjoy. I enjoy talking with guys from that world. It's a very different world than the world of the personal-facing financial advisor uh, with a lot of advantages and a lot of disadvantages. Sometimes I think that professional level of management really is a uh, – it makes things a lot easier in some ways. So I hopefully you enjoyed that interview. Thanks so much for listening. Come back tomorrow for a rockin' conversation. I don't know why I say the word rockin'. Come back for a very interesting educational presentation on financial planning. What's it going to be about? I don't know. You'll know tomorrow. I've got a bunch of topics. I've got like five open series running right now. So come on back tomorrow for a great show. Uh, Thanks so much for those of you who are leaving ratings and reviews. I appreciate that. Do it all the more. It makes my world... Thank you for listening to today's show. This show is intended to provide entertainment, education, and financial enlightenment. Your situation is unique, and I cannot deliver any actionable advice without knowing anything about your situation. Please develop a team of professional advisors and consult them because they are the ones who can understand your specific needs your specific goals, and provide specific answers to your questions. I've done my absolute best to be clear and accurate in today's show, but I'm one person and I make mistakes. If you spot a mistake in something I've said, please come by the show page and comment so that we can all learn together. Until tomorrow, thanks for being here.